let us all stand for the public reading of God's word. We're reading from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 25 to chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, we'll be doing the responsive reading, and uh, Chris will be reading the, the even, even verses. I'll be reading the odd verses. Reading from the NIV. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. And that they will come to their they senses, come to their and, senses escape and escape from the trap of the devil, taken captive, captive to his Okay. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who warm their way into the homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Just as James, uh, Janus, and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will, everybody together, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Dear precious Father, we thank you for bringing us together. Uh, we thank you that your, um, your people are faithful in the Sunday attendance. We ask, Lord, that, that your spirit would show up in this place and that you would deliver your word. You would allow your servant to deliver your word um, with clarity and spiritual power. And uh, surely, as the enemy will try to interfere, we ask, Lord, that your angels and your mighty power would... Uh, create a field around us so that all of us who are present would be attentive and to receive this message for surely it will be profitable for our spiritual battle ahead of us. May your messenger speak your truth with uh, uh, clarity and uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and right before you. Amen. You may be seated. Good afternoon. Welcome to Sunday service. Uh, while researching for this message, uh, right now, uh, David, back there, you're going to have to be sync with me because there are quite a lot of slides and I want to show in uh, clear succession because there's some information. I came across a surprising statistic in the worldview here in the United States. You guys know what a Barna, Barna uh, survey is? Have you ever heard of the Barna group? No? Okay. Well, there's a, there's a group of people that do surveys and uh, they take the opinion of the people about certain worldviews. And uh, when you look at the time, look at the time and, uh, and, uh, and how it shifts, how the group of people who used to say that they believe it, it changes, it's pretty alarming to say the least. There's some surprising findings that uh, more Americans believe in the existence of Satan than they believe in God. And uh, more people believe that Jesus was divine and a sinner, if you could believe that. People believe that he, he could not have not sinned. They, they don't have the right Jesus in their minds. Then he is divine and sinless. So we have a couple of points here. 
they believe more people believe in the existence of Satan than more people uh, than the people believe in the existence of God. If you look in the pie chart um, that will show you, this is uh, it says point score. But can you go one further back, maybe? Okay, one further back. Okay, in 2020, this is just last year during year of the COVID, when they did the uh, when they did the poll, the dark pie chart. It's people who are not sure that there is a God, and then 51% they believe in God. So, and I don't know if this is talking about a Christian God, but this is just probably just generically God. They believe in a God, right? Um, 30 years ago, that number used to be 73%. There are far more people that used to believe in God. And now, if you go back to 2020, this means that more and more people are becoming secular in their point of view. They are rejecting the notion of an all-powerful God. And if you go to the next one, next pie chart, that's red. That's uh, 56% of the people that believe that Satan is real, as opposed to 44% that they don't believe it is real. So when you look at the pie chart, compared to the other, earlier pie chart, you know, a good 4% of the people believe in the, in the uh, actual entity uh, named uh, Satan, right? Um, 1% of America, back 30 years ago, they used to believe that uh, higher power may exist, but nobody really knows for certain. But now that number is 20%. 20% of the people believe that there is a higher power, but nobody knows. So 20% agnostics. Now, if I look at my own life, a little over 20 years ago, I used to be in that group of people. I knew for certain there was a higher power. I just, I just did not know who that was. I didn't know who that was or what that was. And uh, there were many, many people who nurtured my faith along the way. And today I know our Heavenly Father through uh, Jesus' Son, and I'm getting to know better every day the Holy Spirit. So that's why Paul exhorts uh, Timothy to, to instruct opponents gently because this gentleness is with the expectation and the hope that they will repent. If you have friends and family members that are not believers, you know, you're going to have to continually be gentle about this, that this repentance will lead to the knowledge of the truth. And, um, and what this looks like once they know the knowledge of truth, they come to their senses. They come to their senses and they turn away from wickedness and this could take a long while. Just because you've been attending church for 10 years, since you, know, since you were little, because your parents kept bringing you here, if, if, you, if, you have, if that hasn't clicked into you, where you come to your senses, then uh, you're going to continue on in the pattern. But what the, what the repentance, what the true repentance and knowledge of truth allows you to, to be free from is to be no longer captive to do the will of the devil. That's what Paul says, and he says it kind of casually, but this is something that we have to go through a little bit more in depth. All of us here, uh, raise your hands. I mean, we don't have very many today, but if you just raise your hand, uh, how many of you believe that you belong to God? Raise your hand if you believe, okay? If you, those of you who are home, there you go. You belong to God, right? Whether we like it or not, if we belong to God, we do face an enemy, we face an enemy, just like God, who we believe in, manifests in three persons. We have God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
The enemy of the Christian exists along the trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Can you go to the slide, please? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Apostle John says this in his first letter. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love, love for the Father is not in them. That's a pretty, it's a pretty harsh and dividing statement because we live in the world, right? This is the same John who said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son. In the world, there's just really, the reality of it is that in the world, there's too many things that, that have the potential to turn into an idol. To have your heart veer away from the love of the Father and the knowledge of the truth. Why do you think that Jesus goes as far as to say, you know, if you don't love your mother, if you don't hate your mother and father, you are not worthy of serving me. In comparison to your affection and allegiance to Jesus Christ, you, you can't have anything that stands above that. You can't. Otherwise, you're not worthy of, of him or serving him. Now, um, there's, a, there's another thing. When, we talk about, when we're talking about the world, to not love the world, the world that is, that is comprising of is, is basically the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. This gov govern the things of the world. How Paul put it earlier is like how when a good soldier should not get entangled in the, in the civilian affairs, right? For the Christian, the affection for God is to be turned up so high that all other affections become actually negligible. Now the reality of it is that we don't, we don't really live that way. We have all kinds of things that we're clinging to. This is the why I'm actually uh, encouraging the ESC to, to do an exercise of fasting something that has a hold of you. Uh, for me, in my case, uh, for decades, it's been coffee. I've been drinking coffee ever since I was like uh, 18, pretty habitually. And I don't think I've ever really given it much thought to it, except for during these times of Lent when we intentionally give it up so that we could be more in focus of the other things. How much of it was, was it you know, playing a, a dominant role in my life, right? Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 17, if you go to the slide, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Whenever we're kind of younger, we like to relish in the freedom of doing whatever we want, whatever we, what suits our fancy. Last Sunday, I mentioned the evil desires of youth. These are the things that pertain to our flesh. Allowing our decisions to be governed solely by our personal pleasure, preference, or physical conveniences, it's already dubious. Also, sometimes we get the dictates from the world. The world does everything this way, so we want to kind of mimic and follow along. It's like, what do you call it, uh, Peer pressure. There's a peer pressure to wanting to do what everybody else is doing. So we need to discern what is from the Holy Spirit so that uh, we have, so that we have, a, so that we can stand a chance against the, the world in which we live in, the flesh which we have as long as we're alive, and against, uh, against the, the will of God that stands, by and large, this third, this third entity. This is the first point of the message today that the devil is a real entity. The devil is a real entity. How many of you have ever experienced something vaguely demonic? Something that's just weird and unpleasant, that you know that it's not coming from just natural causes. Have you ever experienced anything like that? 
Sometimes this happens. I remember uh, one pastor friend of mine, he did a mission to China, and this could not have been from God. It was a disaster. While they were waiting by a bus stop, this metal sheet roof came off, and I think one of the members actually got, got a little hurt, you know, but it could have been like really, really worse. It has a personality and will, and it has an overwhelming influence in the world, and it works, become evident eventually. You may not know it right now, but after it passes and has done the damage, you'll know, okay, that was, that was not from God at all. That was, that was the evil one. It is well cloaked. It is very well cloaked, but it destroys true fellowship. It breeds discord and strife. It incites rebellion against God, His church, and His chosen instruments. Check your own heart attitudes. Ask yourself, what am I being, being influenced by here? It drives people into self-deceived patterns of sin. It weakens the will of the people to do good. And in the end, it will consume you. Do you remember when, uh, when God cursed the serpent? He said, you will be crawling on your belly, eating the dust for the rest of your life, all the days of your life. And uh, it just so turns out that we're, Adam was made of the dust of the earth, right? One of the most masterful skill, it is a subtlety and disguise. Very, very subtle. And its most successful ploy is to keep the people blinded as to its own existence. So the more people don't know that it exists, it's probably for the better. So when you looked at the pie chart, and a good half of them don't believe in the devil, that's to his adv- its advantage, actually. Now the problem with the 56% that believe in the devil... Uh, they might actually even be worshiping the devil. That's the only problem. If you remember, uh, this thing, the devil, went after Jesus after 40 days of his fasting. I mean, it takes audacity to go after Jesus after 40 days of his fasting. To tempt him. That was his mission, right? Apostle Peter says this in his first letter. If you'll go to the slide. Be alert, And of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It is my prayer that our worship of God and our fellowship is strong, so strong that no one will be able to be caught so isolated and vulnerable as to become a prey to the enemy. Amen? Okay. The devil that uh, Paul mentioned so casually here in our text is a real entity of tremendous power. We human beings, alone in ourselves, we don't stand a chance against his schemes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul describes the devil in the following way. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is, who is the image of God. They're not able to see Jesus as glorious as, as he is, Right? Whenever, whenever you, you preach to somebody who is under the, under the control and the influence of the devil, all they can really do is sneer, sneer at the, at the weakness of, of God who had to die on the cross. They don't, they're, not, they're not able to understand the, the magnanimity and the generosity of his forgiveness. Who, what else could, could the God of this age be talking about, right? But the good news is that the tactics of the enemy are obvious, it's subtle, but it's obvious. We, the people of God who have the knowledge of truth, we can see that Satan's primary weapon is to deceive and to tempt. If you know that this is a tempting to do to you, to, for you to do sin so that you will 
be winding up dead. You know, you know that's coming from the devil, right? It is, it's, greatest, it's the greatest defect of, of the Satan is, is his pride and arrogance. Satan is very proud and is arrogant, thinks that it can have a one-upmanship over God. Even though the, the whole war has already been lost on the cross, it thinks that it will do whatever it takes to take the people of God and to derail them away from, the, from salvation, from, from worship, right? If you know the truth of God, you hold fast to Him and you don't veer from the truth. You're obedient to the leadership of the church because you believe that God has placed them in their position. The Greek word for, word for the devil, diabolos, it means a slanderer. You guys know what that means, right? To speak evil of somebody, right? The first person that it slandered was God. I can't think of a worse position to be in, being captive to doing its will. It is my prayer that none of you here in the ESC would be caught in doing the devil's deeds, but that you would have, have having repented to God, would separate yourself from such things wisely, clearly, and resolutely. No turning back. Once you see that God, this is the way to God, continue to be on that way. Apostle Paul, as well as Jesus himself, always warns us about the last days. But mark this, Paul says, there will be terrible times in the last days. Have you guys ever thought to yourself, just watching the media, what's going on around the world? Have you guys ever thought to yourself, maybe this is what the last days that Paul is talking about means. Maybe this is what it is. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. Now to be sure, there are two greatest commandments, right? The second of the two is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So in order to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to have a certain level of esteem for your own self first. There is no such thing as a Christian doormat. If you're being a doormat, you're not really loving the right way. No doormat, only salt that has lost its saltiness and, and has to be trampled over the feet of men. You have to care about yourself enough in order to care for other people. You see, though what Paul is talking about here are people who love themselves but couldn't give a care about other people. They're just so isolated and so devoted to themselves that they cannot genuinely care for other people. In fact, if it's about preserving my own reputation, if it's about how other people will perceive me, before the eyes of men, I will do the things that are right and upright. But then if I think that no one else is looking, then I will continue in my selfish ways, right? A Spanish-speaking pastor friend of mine, he used the word, it's a Spanish word, egolatria. In, in English, loosely it would be translated as egolatry. A selfish outlaw, outlook locked into self-serving ways. The rest of the descriptions that Paul lies out, lays out, they're causes for the problems of the sinfulness of this world. Sinfulness of this world. Lovers of money. Right now, the media is very hot talking about systemic racism. Systemic racism, but how about systemic greed? If you remember the United States housing bubble burst, you guys remember this? Maybe from media or from news or from studying history. Back in 2008, there was a housing bubble like bursting, right? 
It was a collapse of the housing market economy, and the cause of it was a systemic cause. You cannot blame one particular party. When you look at the, the report uh, you know, in a recent search I did on Google, the collapse was attributed to everyone from home buyers to Wall Street to mortgage bro brokers to Alan Greenspan. Short-sighted, irresponsible, and greedy structure ended up imploding because it was simply not sustainable. Boastful, proud, and abusive. You know what that makes me think of? You guys ever watch MMA, mixed martial arts? I mean, they pop up everywhere on YouTube. You know, you guys have friends that, that watch that stuff. I mean, some of you might even, like, have you know, friends that are practitioners of martial art, mixed martial arts. But there's some of them are just, basically, that's how they talk. That's, like, their, their thing. Being boastful, proud, and abusive is basically the, the image that they want to, to portray as, you know, their hardness. They want, to, they want to come off as, you know, the top, tough, right? Or gangster rappers. Gangster rappers, they kind of perpetuate that culture as if that's enshrined as something noble and to, to be respected. Even our former president caught such intense criticism for his less than presiden presidential, boastful, proud, and abusive demeanor. Right? I mean, they were, they were really hard. The, the, even the church was divided. The church is like, well, we should stand behind the president, but when he does that, it's like, it's really hard. It's really hard to to support him, we can, all we can do is really pray, right? We're living in a culture where people like that are actually idolized. People that are, that are rude, surly, uh, people that are not gentle, boastful about themselves, we actually idolize these people in this culture. Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. For those of you who look forward to becoming parents in the future, raise your hands if you think in the distant future you might become a parent. I see only, only one person, two. Okay, right. I mean, eventually you'll become a parent, right? But think of the grief that a disobedient child could bring to a mother or a father, especially when your parenting is met without gratitude but insolence. Imagine, imagine the pain. I know the pain because I was one of those, one of those uh, ungrateful sons insolent, right? And I, and I, every time I think about that, it's a, it's a grief. It's a grief that I have that kind of a past. But during my earlier years here in the United States, I don't know how shocked I was when I heard a schoolmate describe his mother, own mother, as a female dog. Have you guys ever had friends that do this? They are talking about their moms and they use the B word. And I'm like, do you have any idea what you are saying? <laughs> In hindsight, I, it should not have been very surprising. You know, we are living in, in a, all living in a fallen, unholy, and sinful world. We are living in a sinful, sinful world, and it's unholy. It's devoid of the fear of God. And the goodness and decency of His loving kindness is not there. We are in the world, but we're not of it. That's the distinction that we have to be clear of. We're living in it now, but we can't live as if, as if we're part of it, you know? We're, we're from another world, right? We're serving a king from another world. Remember when Jesus had this, this uh, face-off with Pontius Pilate? My kingdom is not of this world. We are subjects of that kingdom. Don't love the world, brothers and sisters. And then next verse is, Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, Rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than, the lo- rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. This is the second point of the message today. God calls his people to a separation from wickedness. Separation from wickedness. We were called by the one and only God who is not a part of this world. That is a distinction that we have to make. We are living in a pluralist society. You have been trained in college. If you took one uh, class that has to deal with the religions of the world, you realize, oh shoot, the way I've been living, the way I've been indoctrinated in me me by the Christian, Christian doctrine, Maybe that's not the correct thing. You start to have doubts, and then you start to look at these other things, and, you, and then you listen to the arguments of the other people, and then you go, hmm, maybe. But let me tell you, make no mistake about this. This is the one singularity that I want you to have in your mind so that it's not budging ever. We're worshiping the only one God who's not a part of this world, not even part of the whole universe, because he has created it all. This is what we mean by the word Holy entirely separate from from the mundane, from the ordinary, from even space and time. It is God who we worship that has brought space and time into existence. And when he calls us, he did this through Jesus Christ. You know, you might have heard heard this slogan, uh, all roads lead to salvation. All religions lead to salvation. That's what you might have heard, but that's the most that's a satanic, that's a pretty satanic statement because you're actually denigrating the position of where Jesus is, the uniqueness of, of Jesus, and you're kind of putting it at the equal level with everything else. And when you look at that, when you examine the idolatry of these other religions, you come to the realization that under the, under the surface of all the niceties, all the things that it seems to possess, all the good teachings, the morality that it seems to possess, underneath it all, it separates you from the only God that can save you. When he calls us, he calls us through, through Jesus Christ. Why does it have to be Jesus? He is uniquely divine and simultaneously so entirely human. He's uniquely divine and he's so human and yet completely without sin. Remember in the Barna group uh, research, people thought that he was, he was divine but yet he had sin? That's an anthropomorphism. Because we can be good, right? All of us here can be good, but we can also have a sinful heart. They're kind of projecting what, how we are to Jesus. And I'm saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Because then you have created a false Jesus that can't save you. To be human, to be human is to know sin, you could say. That's how, that's how we are. Humanity is just riddled by sin since the beginning of time. But Jesus is a paradox. Jesus is a paradox. He, he is the exception He is separate from the rest, from all of us, from everything else. In fact, it is through him that everything was created before the fall. He is the only true holy human. If you want to think of a human image that was actually holy, that's none other than Jesus Christ. He has the, he ha- there is a great reason why we worship him. There's a great reason why we adore him and love him. You understand? The message of the cross is compelling enough to denounce those ways of the world. After we learn that the Son of God, the only one without sin, took the penalty of the sins of the world, we come face to face with both what the the form of godliness entails and what that power of godliness carries. Just mere form of godliness, right? Your moral conduct in the way you speak politely. I mean, 
the smoothness of your speech is not what carries the it's not what carries the uh, the power of God that actually saves salvific. The salvific, the salvific power of God comes from somebody who might be able to point out your sin. If it's in fact an actual sin, right? You see, we are able to endure the death of this earthly body because we know that Jesus was risen from the dead. So we will also rise from the dead. Do you guys remember when Jesus called Lazarus? There was an old guy by the name of Lazarus who had died. He said, Lazarus, come out. He was already like fourth day into his entombment, so he was already decomposing in his flesh. He came out. He came out of the grave in that way. On that day when he calls us out, we will all call, be called by name. He will call each of us by name and we will be risen from the dead. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Here Paul is talking about religious people who carry the external features of their religiosity, but when you examine them a little closer, they deny the very power of God. They talk about praying to God, but they don't really believe that God can do what they pray for, right? They don't believe that God can do what He says. Our faith is expressed not only by our words, but by our actual reliance on Him. You know, I mean, since we're, I'm talking to, I'm addressing a younger, younger congregation, and I don't want to fuel any disagreements that you might have with your parents, but I'm, I'm kind of advocating for you guys. Our own parents, in the way they carry their, their walk of faith, sometimes it can, it can affect us in a bad way. If, if you really believe in God, why do you worry so much about your children, is what I want to ask the parents. If you really believe in God, why do you worry so much about their future? Why is that the primary concern? If you actually believe in God, if you pray to God, why do you, why do you place such a, such a, a, a real estate and premium in, in these other minutiae details when it should be the, the primary concern should be godliness, faithfulness, righteousness, and the very faith that carries you for, to the next day, to the next day, to the goals that He, that he places, places before us to accomplish for His glory. There are people who don't access his power in that way, but actually deny it. They, they have to establish devices of control, measures of control, so that it goes along with their, their preferred view of, of, of things. In the end, they represent themselves and the world rather than God's image. Have nothing to do with such people. This is a central calling of today's message. Don't get caught amongst them in their ways. Separate yourselves from them, Paul is saying. I mean, if I was to give you an alternative, I mean, because we're not just going to be operating our lives as separatists like the Pharisees. We're not just going to, like, uh, if there's a tax collector and a prostitute just because they are such people, it's not, that's not what he's saying. But by, by clinging to this, there are things that the gospel gives us access to. In that slide with the, in that slide with the red lettering, David I don't know if they could see it, but maybe they can in uh, those at home. The ways of love, right? The ways of love, instead of being devoid of love, of forgiveness, not slanderers, but edifying, encouraging speech. Whenever somebody, whenever there's somebody that we're talking about somebody, like while they're not there, it's always a good policy. If you have nothing good to say about them because they're really not that great, then you just keep your mouth shut. But if you want to say something about them, Say something that is encouraging. 
Not because you know you you want to seem like the, because you can think of those things. God will put those things in your heart and then edify them in their absence, building each other up, building each other up. That is how the fellowship becomes worthwhile. You know, sometimes I think that one of the house churches, uh, one of the mis- one of the potential dangers and harms is that it becomes a sewing circle. You become a tight knit of a group of people that are kind of in their cliques. And then it becomes like a festival of let's, let's, let's bring down, let's mar that person who is not with us. I mean, that if, if, it, if it degrades down to that, it's better to not do it at all. It's better to not do it at all. Edifying, encouraging speech, building each other up with self-control, gentleness, loving goodness, and loyalty. Not, be, not treacherous, right? Treacherous means that you betray, like Judas betrayed Jesus, but being loyal. Timeliness and patience, humility, loving God. Those are some things that we might want to cling to while we separate ourselves from those other things. Don't, don't lay yourself open to those things. Sometimes we do it willingly. Sometimes we pay money to do this. When we go see a movie that clearly has a content that's not edifying to your spirits, that's exactly what you're doing. You're promoting it. You're actually paying money, to, money to, to allow an industry to indoctrinate all of us, brainwash us with things that are just utterly, utterly unholy and perhaps even evil. We have to engage culture, but we have to be very selective. This is how we are to be. To, so, so separate yourselves from the former ways before you na- came to know Christ. Separate yourself from the people who are like that. Remove yourselves from their toxicity because it can affect you in a very, very negative way. Sometimes a disapproving separation as a corrective measure can be the most loving thing for them and yourselves. Let's say that you, oh geez, I don't know if this is a good good example, but let's say that uh, you used to be a member of a gang. I don't know if I foresee ever in the future gang members gracing our congregation with their presence, but if they turn away from the gang and they join this family as worshiper, can they continue to be in touch with the gang? No, right? No. They have to separate themselves. The rest of the verses are describing the characteristics of people who are on their way from, from bad to going worse. Right? Not only without salvation, but actively challenging, rebelling against God. Now, I don't know if Paul has specific people in mind, but he gives a rather specific description of a certain people. They are the kind who warm their ways into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. This describes someone who is like the modern playboy, you know? who takes advantage of women. In the Bible, there are many descriptions of women who who would play the seductress to seduce the men, like in the Proverbs of Solomon, stay away from the adulteress, right? But in this case, we're talking about men who seduce superstitious and weak women. This weakness, we're talking about a moral weakness who yield to their control because of an absence of a knowledge of truth. Because they don't have the truth, because they don't have Christ, Because they don't know the cross, they can be manipulated by men such as these. You see, when we're talking about truth, truth is ultimately ultimately satisfying. 
When you, you, when you guys talk about philosophy, the quest of, for, for wisdom for men is always in search for the truth, as if we can get, as if we can somehow gain access to it, somehow achieve it, achieve, discover it, right? But truth, as we know it, is a revelation that was given to us by God. God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and we know that when we talk about the capital T, the truth, it is something that was granted to us from his goodness. Truth of God is an eternal fountain of joy and strength. But in the world, when you are driven by your flesh, just as described here, you get loaded down with sins, like an animal entangled in thorn bushes or a hunting trap. You are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, unstable in all your ways. Now, women like that are especially vulnerable because there exist scoundrels who would take advantage of them. It is a, this is a terrible condition to always be learning, to, but to never to come to the, acknowledge tr- the knowledge of truth. You know what this is describing? You're always learning. You know, you're always busy learning and learning. You're going on uh, like night, nightly binges of just searching things out on Wikipedia and like researching and researching and researching, and you're never satisfied. This describes fruitless learning. Fruitless learning. All sorts of information that really amount to no real satisfaction of your soul and even usefulness. Right? I mean, that to me sounds like a preview for hell. This is the current cultural climate these days. This is what we're living these days. On college campuses, anyone who claims absolute truth, for example, absolute moral truth, they're seen as naive and even threatening. As a pastor, as a Christian pastor, I believe that there is absolute moral truth in God, right? But in the world, this becomes a message that is a microaggression against them. That's a buzz, big buzzword in the campuses. So it's microaggression, you know. You're hurting my feelings because you're saying that I'm a sinful man or sinful person, right? And this hostility is deeply embedded in the culture through the media. The media just continually bombarding us. And so even, even as you sit here and you're listening to me speak, you might have things that have been programmed into you resisting. You know, there's a tension now. There's a, it's a dialectic. You're opposing and you're going... Is that really true? You know? But if you really are sold out for Jesus, if you really love Jesus, instead what you should have in your heart is, is a resounding amen, which in a Baptist church you're able to put yourself off the mute and say it. You could say amen if you really are moved to say that by the Spirit of God. Watch what you are filling your minds with. Watch what you are consuming. They come, nowadays, you don't go searching for it. It comes after you. You know all those cookies that you guys uh, agree to on whichever website you go to, whichever uh, social network site you go to? There are little programs. I don't know what you call them, but they, they, these little bugs that will come and to the, the custom tailor to your psychological, your profile, your consumer profile, and it will come seeking, inviting itself into your, into your lap, into, your, into your, the area of consciousness, and it's, it's really... Um, trying to sell you something you don't need. And they may sway you away from, the, um, the, from, the pre- from your precious truth conviction. Separate yourself from wickedness. Never assume that you are immune. None of us are immune. We, are, we're all, we all have the, the chance of allowing things to inter- interfere with our faith walk. So the last point of our message today is this. 
probably the most unpopular point in any sermon, hell is just as real as the devil. How many of you guys know what universalism means? Universalism. There are churches that are called, they call themselves universalists. You know what that means? That means that everybody is saved. Since Jesus did his work on the cross, everybody is saved. There is no such thing as sin. Everybody will make it to heaven. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Does that reflect of reality? What Paul is giving us is, is a dose of reality right here. In verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so, are, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not, go get, very, they will not get very far because, as in the case of these men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, Paul is speaking about certain people that Timothy is facing in the Ephesian church, okay? And uh, you won't find the names Janus and Jambres anywhere else in the Bible, but according to church tradition, what this is referring to, I don't know if you remember in Exodus, Moses, Moses confronts uh, the Pharaoh. Basically, Moses says, let, let his people go, let my people go, let the Hebrews go so that we could go worship God, right? That's the confrontation. In Exodus 7, it reads, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and the officials, and he became a snake. It was a display of God's power, right? Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down their, his staff, and it became a snake. You know what happens next? If, you, if you've been to Sunday school, I hope that you guys covered this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So even though there is this supernatural power encounter between God and the, and the Pharaoh, basically, Satan, right? Is that God prevails. God prevails. It's, it's actually God's domain. It was never Satan's domain. It was never Satan's domain. These Janus and Jambres types, they're not the kind of opponents you are expected to be gentle with in hopes that God would grant them repentance. There's a whole separate category of people that you just don't do that, you know? You would think, you would think that they only exist in movies, but they do actually exist in the world. There are people who are eager to do evil, who gain great pleasure by doing wickedness. There are people like that. Paul describes them as men of depraved minds. Depraved meaning morally corrupt, wicked. It's a damage. It's a damage that's been done that needs to be corrected. But these people, they're already in the hardness of their hearts. They're continually opposing God, against God. Paul says that as far as the faith goes, their faith, they are rejected. And while God is able to forgive every sin, and that no matter how horrendously entangled in sin your past has been in your life, you are still able to come to repentance, confess your sins, and He is for, he's faithful to forgiving, forgiving you and to restore you. But we collectively do witness a reality, undeniably, that has people who precisely do not come to repentance. There are people that don't come to repentance all the way to the grave. I had a, a back when I was a when I was a seminary student. I used to do uh, street evangelism with a buddy of mine. We used to go and uh, and I'm, I was super shy about it. 
I was shy about it. I mean, even now, even now, if I went and somebody asked me, hey, why don't, Pastor Charlie, why don't you show us how you do your street evangelism? I could do it, but it's, it's a certain level of discomfort that, you know, I have to fight through to do it. But this buddy of mine, um, he used to, his opening line was, please don't go to hell, sir. Please don't go to hell, sir. You know, Jesus loves you. Please don't go to hell, sir. That's, that's what he would start with. And I'm like, and I'm thinking in my mind, geez, man, I don't know if that would win souls, but I remember one guy, as he was pacing very quickly away from him, and as my buddy was following him, he said, this is what were his words, I will go to hell as I damn well please. People don't want to repent. They just want to keep going their own way. They don't have the knowledge of God. And they oppose, they oppose the, uh, the, tr- the, the message of truth host- with hostility. It's not just that they're like, oh, no, thank you. We're talking about, they, they turn around and they now are able to, they want to clobber you. They want to actually inflict injury to you because you possess the truth of God. This is not a new, this, this is a pattern that we began with Jesus. It actually was even before Jesus. When, when God sent his prophets, what did, they, what did the Israelites do? You know, they, they, uh, they heaped abuses on them and then they killed them ultimately, right? Now the place, this, what, what he's talking about, Janus and Jambres in context. Paul is writing to Timothy who's in Ephesus, I mentioned already, right? You may remember from our study of Book of Acts. In all of Asia Minor, Ephesus, it happens to be the center for magical arts. You guys, did you guys know that magic actually works? Magic works. Satan is able to deceive the sorcerers and then the warlocks and the witches to be able to put a hex and, and, and there's actually things that happen to people because of these secret arts. This was the place where the incidents happened where there were seven sons of Sceva that were going around cast, trying to cast out evil spirits in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. They don't even know Jesus, but they want to try to play the, uh, you know, the, the healer, magician, the, the sorcerer. So they want to, they're like, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, I, I, you know, I cast you out. And then this possessed man once comes and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you? And then he, <laughs> that one man overpowered all the seven, and they took such a beating that they had to leave the house naked and bleeding. That's what the record says. And this incident was known throughout the area, and it brought people, people had the fear of God because they, they saw this power encounter, and then they realized, oh man, I just shouldn't be messing with this. So they brought a lot of expensive scrolls of magic and sorcery. I remember uh, I told you what the value was. It's a lot of money they brought, and they just, you know, they burned it. They placed, placing this, this Janice and Jambers reference in, in, in Paul's letter in context, you know, we can, see, we can see why he's mentioning them. We're talking about oppositions with powers. We have the Holy Spirit power, but the opposition has also their powers. You know, they have, they have their powers and their tricks up their sleeves. We should not be completely unaware of these things. That's why we, we need to be, spend our times in prayer. By the way, how many of you pray for me? <laughs> I mean, that's what I've been, I've been asking myself. Because I come here praying. I mean, it's a, it's a new habit that I'm trying to instill, like, you know, really formally. Like, you know, having the form of godliness, but also the power. Like coming here and kneeling and praying for my, my church, praying, praying for you guys, right? But I, I need your prayers. Because the more resolute, the more I want to advance and go on the offense, 
the pushback is you can feel it on your skin. You can feel it. Like right now, we have a brother who could not come to worship because his neck is not, is, is not doing well, right? We need to pray far more than we are praying right now. And the end times is, is coming closer and closer every day. I will close today's message with a cautionary tale as an example. We just went through the whole Bible. Uh, this is the, 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 the whole message was on the, on the passage, but right now, I'll just tell you a story from history. So from an article that I found uh, from the History Channel, from a July 31st article in 20, 2018. It has to do with uh, Apollo 11, the Eagle, Eagle uh, lunar module that landed on the moon on the 1969. Well, I wasn't even born yet then, but um, there was a Neil Armstrong. You guys heard of Neil Armstrong, right? And Buzz Aldrin. They were having to wait a little bit in the lunar module before, before you know, Houston clears them. And uh, while they're waiting, it turns out that uh, Buzz Aldrin happened to be an elder at, West, at Webster Presbyterian Church in Houston. So, and he got special permission to take bread and wine up there and to take the first Holy Communion on the moon. Uh, David, can you go to the last slide? That's the, that's the actual implement. They ha he had the little the chalice for the, for the grape juice. Well, I don't know if it was actually wine, but since the Presbyterian, it might have been actually wine. It's a wine, and he took a bread, right? And um, he, was, he did the communion service alone by himself. By himself. I'm going to go ahead and read the, the, some of the article here. As the men prepared for the next phase on their mission, Aldrin got on the the communication system and spoke to the ground crew back on earth. I would like to request a few moments of silence, he said. I would like to invite each person listening in, wherever and whomever he may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his own individual way. Now, that was toned down a lot. I mean, I'm sure he wanted to do a full-blown Christian thing, but uh, there's pressures from the world that had, had removed a lot of the uh, overtly Christian elements. Aldrin, he felt that the service that he did should be broadcast to the entire world, but this atheist by the name of Madeleine Murray O'Hare, atheist activist, she was once dubbed the most hated woman in America, her high-profile activism on behalf of separation of church and state indirectly doomed that occasion. That communion service would have been, it could have been televised to everybody, and we could have all, I mean, those of the people that were joining in, you know, in, in, the, in the airwaves would have been able to just uh, really, really partake in a glorious event, the first communion service on the moon, outside of the earth, right? It turns out that a few months earlier, this lady O'Hare, she had sued NASA, because uh, the Apollo 8 astronauts, they were reciting the book of Genesis during a broadcast made on Christmas Day, uh, 1968, when they became the first humans to orbit around the moon. You know how the, the Genesis reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? That's what they recited. And because of this bitter old woman, they couldn't, they couldn't, I mean, well, they did it, but then like uh, any, subsequent, any subsequent representation of God by, by the public state, it becomes, it becomes a legal issue now. This is what begins in the 60s, okay? 
When you, if you are like, if you ever like thinking, geez, I mean, it's pretty bad now. Was it always this bad? It had a beginning, you know. It was, it was always bad, but it, I mean, in the, in the case of the United States, this lady, even though the case, she's trying to sue again, it was ultimately dismissed. It made an impression on the officials. They, they were worried that any overtly religious display might open up the agency for another lawsuit. She's not the only lawyer that hates God, right? She was, I don't even think she actually was a, was a lawyer. She passed law school, but I don't know if she actually passed the bar. But um, The flight crew operation manager, uh, while they're broadcasting, they said, you can have your communion, but keep your comments more general. So he couldn't mention Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I would have mentioned Jesus just because being a punk, you know? I don't know. I don't know if that would have gone well, but anyway. Now, th- this woman, Madeline Murray O'Hare, is our point of focus. Remember Janice and Jambres, right? Opposing God. This person, she could not just let it go. Like, it's not, she had to make it her business to fight against the people of God, that a God-honoring person would share in a moment of worship with other fellow Americans or perhaps other fellow Christians around the world. She could not tolerate it, right? So she made it her primary agenda to fight against the idea of America being a Christian nation. And her fight, brothers and sisters, has been successful. Successful. She was born in 1919. She was the founder of American Atheists, a nonprofit organization dedicated to defending the civil liberties of atheists, advocating complete separation of church and state. And she founded it in 1963, and she served it as its president in 1986. It turns out to have a nonprofit of that kind of uh, nature is profitable. It is something to do, right? People, she's getting supported from all, all. There's other like-minded atheists that are supporting her, you know. Oh, you're doing a good whatever. And she, she sued the school district in 1963 for mandatory prayer and Bible reading in public schools, in, in the school in Baltimore, and she won the case in the sp- Supreme Court. Supreme Court declared the reading of Bible and prayer, if it being mandatory, was unconstitutional. Can you believe it that there was a time when, there was a time in our history that in schools, in public schools, we were able to, not only able to pray, but we were actually, you know, required to pray? Now, the problem isn't just that she wanted to fight the, for the freedom of disbelief, I mean, she wants, to, she wants to have her own freedom of not believing in God. That's fine, right? But the problem stands by and large in that she diligently sowed the seeds of discord within the structure of the nation at every level. At the laws and policies, she, she's, she's, placing, she's placing pressure, legal pressure, mainly in the education and public policy. Nowadays, the school system for those of you who were raised your hands earlier, one day you want to become a parent, right? The school system now are requiring LGBTQ ethos to be included in the sexual education program. So kids, as early as before middle school, in grade school, kids being opened up to this kind of information so that it will become more normative and accepted. Is that something that we can live with? Would that be okay? I don't know, I'm a little angry about that, but uh, anyway. She, 
She was on a mission from Satan, is, is what, she, what she was. She was. She was on a mission for a godless America. And if you look at her list of her accomplishments, there's like 10 file lawsuits, you know, uh, high profile. And uh, not only was she motivated, she was gaining momentum for a large number of like-minded people. Now, the point of the, the third point, the concluding point of today's message is that it doesn't end well for the people who oppose God. It doesn't end well. People who are rebellious, who are wicked and evil, it doesn't end well for them. In 1955, she was 76 years old. And she and one of her sons, John Garth Murray, and her adopted granddaughter, Robin Murray O'Hare, were killed and dismembered by David Roland Waters, the former office manager of the nonprofit American Atheist. I don't know if she knew or she didn't know that he was ex-felon. He was an ex-felon who had stolen some money from their, uh, from their finances, from their, from their loot, so to speak, and uh, abducted them and killed them and dismembered them. What a gruesome way to end your life, right? Those who oppose the truth of God do not end well. And the devil is a very real entity. And we are called to separate ourselves from wickedness. And hell, just as the devil, is a very real place. If you, if you want to know, I mean, I'll tell you what we just uh, read about. This is a preview of it. Hell is an eternal, like endless torture that way, like punishment. But, but this is a, is a, you know, the hatred and the bitterness, all of this is, is a preview, is a preview of, of the hell that people, unfortunately, unrepentant, go willingly, willingly, even when the gospel is preached to them. And, uh, and as, I was, as I was researching this story, I'm, I'm going, I can't end the message on such a downer, man. I mean, yeah, there's poetic justice that evil, somebody evil gets what they deserve later. I mean, there's a part of me, I'm not above it. Um, there's a part of me that's like, yes, you know, whoever does evil, may they, may they get their comeuppance. May they get what they deserve, right? But uh, it is a downer of a story. You don't want to leave on a Sunday on that note. I noticed that God did something in that woman's life whether she liked it or not. And this is a redemptive, a redemptive aspect of that train wreck of a life. To Madeline O'Hare, to her was born another son by the name of William J. Murray III. He was born out of, a, 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 out of wedlock from an affair to a married Catholic officer, William Murray Jr. In 1980, at the age of 34, this William III, he became a Christian and later became a Baptist minister to speak against some of the damage that his mother had done. In the Baltimore, the first landmark case, Baltimore Murray versus Kurtlet case, it was him. It was his name that she used. Of course, he's a little boy, so he doesn't have a say. She used that, her son's name that she has used as plaintiff. And when she found out later on that one of her own sons became a Christian, this was her comment. One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother, I guess. I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. 
Can you believe that? This woman disowned her son because he gave himself to the Lord. And whatever she said is going to come true, right? With her own mouth, she condemned herself. Because he's going to go to heaven, she's not. He's now 74 years old, but uh, for 40 years he's been doing the exact opposite work that his mother did. That bitter atheist woman. He's an author, minister, and lobbyist, and a chairman for a nonprofit organization called Religious Freedom Coalition. I'm going to read you some of the titles of his books. My Life Without God, describing the horrors of what it was like to grow up in that household with that atheist mother of his. The church is not for perfect people. And then let us pray, a plea for prayer in our schools. Stop the Y2K Madness, written in 1999. The Pledge, One Nation Under God. And finally, Utopian Road to Hell, Enslaving America and the World with Central Planning. We are at the cusp, we are in an age, we have to be so alert and awake because of the things, the way things are changing. If you're caught sleeping spiritually, when it happens, boom, it will happen before you even know it. And all the religious freedoms that we had, the freedom to come to worship together in, in person, it will be gone one day. That could come very soon within your lifetimes. But praise be to God, because in this story, in this wretched story of that atheist woman, he is mighty to save. Can you see in this confrontation the war between good and evil here? We have an atheist mother who is bitter, militant, militant, militantly atheist against God <laughs> out of her own seed, out of her, I mean, out of her own uh, offspring. We have uh, one of his very own. He can do that. I pray that each and every one of you will be alert and separate from the things that can only darken your counsel as you are already separated unto God by his cross. If you are here, it's not because your parents persuaded you to be here. It's because you were already separated unto God by the cross that you place your faith in. Amen? Amen. Just as, just as God did for this, for this man, William Murray III, who even though was born into a godless family, a rebellious godless family, and an enemy of the truth of God, God had led him to himself and to do his good works for which God had prepared in advance for him to do. Our God is, I mean, first of all, the, the, the devil is a formidable enemy. Formidable enemy. We can't, we can't play around with this. But our Lord is infinitely greater. That's where the good news is. Are we with God? Let us close in prayer. Dear precious Father, we thank you, Lord, for the message. Um, help us have no fear of the enemy. Lord, uh, we tremble in fear before you, but we have no fear of the enemy. We have no fear of man. Lord, help us do all our deeds, not so that people will be evaluated with favor by the eyes of men, but that, that you will be pleased, that you will call us his own, or you will call us your own. Lord, we ask that, that uh, uh, all our, our acts of charity, goodness, will be roused by your compassion, by your Holy Spirit. And if the people here, if we have people that have uh, uh, an inherent weakness in that area, uh, uh, a lack of faith, a lack of compassion, a hardness of heart, we ask, Lord, that, that you would allow us 
to repent towards you and to receive your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness so that we too will be more forgiving instead of torturing ourselves day in and day out because of the bitterness that we can't let go of. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint and uh, you would bless this congregation, that you would multiply this congregation every week, that we would have more people come to your salvation, and that with, that with the baptism that we did for Eric, that it will be the first of many to come. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Now at this time we have a time of a praise and response, after which we have a time of offering. <laughs>